We're going to be in John 17, 20 to 26 this morning. John 17, 20 to 26. Well, it is Mother's Day, and unfortunately my sermon has nothing particularly to do with mothers. Uh, but mothers, you are awesome, and uh, you sacrifice so much for us, and so... Uh, Kids, you better be great to your mothers. Dads, you better be great to your moms. And uh, we're done. Sermon's over. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so uh, that's my that's my mother's bit for Mother's Day. So sorry, we we celebrate in a few weeks. So that's to come. Uh, <clears throat> the desire. We're going to talk about unity today. Uh, I already mentioned that a little bit earlier. The desire for unity is the desire for solidarity. It's woven into the very fabric of what it means to be human. I think we all recognize that. It's not difficult to find uh, examples of people striving after at unity at, at all costs. I'm sure, we've—I was trying to think of a global event. I thought the Olympic Games. You know, we we all watch the Olympic parade. Most of us watch the Olympic parade every four years, and you'll see nations in this opening ceremony walking next to nations. And if you're an outsider looking in, you might actually think that all these nations get along quite well, wouldn't you? That you'd think there's not much turmoil in the world just by by this kind of symbol of of unity. But you'd be wrong, right? There's terrible turmoil. There's terrible injustices between nations. The Olympic ceremonies are really only a symbol of unity. They don't really reflect any kind of reality. Athletics can, you know, they can bring cities together. They can bring uh, old pals together. They can bring nations together. But they don't bring true, meaningful unity, you know? So even the Olympic parade, it seems like a a bit of a a facade when when the next day we're aiming missiles and, and guns at each other. I would suggest to you deep down that all humans desperately crave this. Though We all want to be part of a community. We all want to have a singular vision. We all want to have some common purpose. But most of the world is looking in all the wrong places to find it. Even the terrible evil of racism, I would suggest to you, is, is in some sense a twisted form of looking after, craving after unity. The problem, though, with racists or classists or any kind of hate group is not so much that they don't crave unity. It's that they look for it in the wrong places, right? They want to find unity by looking at their skin color or looking at their social class or looking at, you know, this particular group or this particular group. They want to define unity by themselves. They want it to look like them. In John 17, 20 through 26, Jesus prays for his church to be unified. He prays for this unity to be fueled by love, be fueled by love. See, the problem is that everybody's looking for unity and they're looking for it in the wrong place. If, if you want to find true, meaningful solidarity in the world, true, meaningful unity, you're going to have to look away from yourself and find it in the God of Scripture. And that's what he talks about here in John 17. John 17 has been often called the the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's his final prayer with his disciples the day before his his very crucifixion. Jesus prays first for himself in in verses 1 through 5, and then he he prays that the Father would glorify him, and then he prays for his immediate disciples, his his compadres, his his friends that he has with him, the apostles. And then in the last bit, in verses 20 through 26, he prays to the Father specifically for those who would believe after his ascension, namely the church, you. He prays for us. 
And we'll be focusing our, our time on this last final section, verses 20 through 26. <clears throat> Let's read John 17, 20 through 26. It's uh, in, your, in your pew Bible. Uh, it's on page 1086, if you're looking. Page 1086. My prayer is not for... This is Jesus, again, prayer uh, to the Father. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for all those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made them known, I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may also be in them, and that I myself may be in them. I usually try to give a main point of my sermon. If there's one thing you're going to write down, it'd probably be this. Is the main point of the text is hopefully the main point of the sermon. And that's let unity and love mark your lives so that the world will know that God is in you. Let unity and love mark this, this congregation right here so that the world out there will know that God is in you. I want to give a bit of a roadmap of where we're going today. I'm going to discuss this morning, uh, I'm doing something this morning that I really haven't done. I usually take a, a text and, and kind of take it section by section and, and, and explain it line by line. The problem with this is this is a prayer. And prayers don't always work linearly. They, it, it kind of works like a spiral. Where a spiral where you kind of go round and round. He keeps on going back to the same point, but he takes it from different angles. So he keeps on getting back to the same point, but from different angles. But the main point of his prayer is fairly clear. Jesus' main thrust is that the church would be unified. But first, he grounds the unity of the church in the unity of the Godhead. So in the first point, we're going to examine what it means for the triune God to be one. Then we'll examine how the unity of God fuels our unity as a a body of Christ. And then lastly, we'll look for the purpose, or what's the goal for having unity. But before we do that, let's look at verse 20. It's the introduction to the final section. My prayer is not for them alone. So it's not for his immediate disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. We see the main point very clearly here. He wants them to be one. He wants them to be unified. But whose unity is he referring to in the text? It's those who will believe through their message, through the apostolic message. I want to begin this today by, by saying this. We're going to be talking about unity today. But it's unity that's, that's grounded, that's built into the, their message, into the apostolic message, into the gospel. A lot of people talk about unity. And, and, and unity for them or love for them means love at the cost of truth. Love at the tolerance at the cost of the gospel. But notice, this unity is built built upon it. You can't have unity without it. So in all our talk about love and deference and unity this afternoon, I wouldn't want you to think that these eliminate the need for truth. Not at all. In fact, unity and love can only exist when the truth is actually, the truth of the gospel is actually believed. 
So our first point this morning is the model of Christian unity, which is found in the Trinity. The model of Christian unity, which is found in the Trinity. You know, usually we talk about the doctrine of the... the, I'm going to talk about the Trinity, and we'll explain it in a second. But often it's kind of a dusty doctrine. It's kind of one of these doctrines we have to dust off the shelf, and it kind of seems cold and abstract and distant, and and it doesn't really relate to to our practical life. But I hope you see here, God fuels unity and love and all these very practical concepts in the Trinity. So I hope you see that this thing that we're going to be talking, we're going to do some heavy lifting at the beginning of this service. We're going to be talking a bit about God and theology and the Trinity and how they all interact with one another. And it's going to seem a bit abstract, but I hope you see at the end that this is the model and source for everything that goes on in the life of the church. Jesus doesn't simply say, be unified. He actually provides a model of unity in the Trinity. So what is this thing we call the Trinity? Nothing's more fundamental to, to the Christian faith than the fact that God is one, right? Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's a bit more complex as we approach the New Testament, isn't it? Jesus, who is God's Son, is also described as God, yet he's distinct from the Father. The same is true of the, the Holy Spirit. Since the time of Christ, the church has understood this to be called the Trinity. There is one God with one divine nature. Yet there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these persons within the one God, each have self-awareness. So Jesus is self-aware, Father is self-aware, Holy Spirit is self-aware. They each have the ability to evaluate and communicate and relate to others. The Trinity, this basic, yet somewhat mysterious uh, teaching, provides the background for our text today. John wants us to grasp the oneness or the unity of the Trinity so that we can grasp and reflect that unity as Christians. So first, the oneness of the Trinity. In verse 21, let's look at verse 21, Jesus prays. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You see the same point in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me in order that they may be one as we are one. The Godhead, okay, the Godhead is is one precisely because they dwell within one another. The Father is in the Son, he says, and the Son is in the Father. The Father and the Son are in the Holy Spirit as as they all indwell kind of one another. In the history of the the church, theologians have called this the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. We see this also in in John 14, 10 and 11, where, where Jesus responds to skeptics. He responds to people who are skeptic to him. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? Well, the Trinity is one, but how is... Okay, so, okay, I understand. The Trinity is one, and they one because they dwell in one another. But what does that mean? It means they're one in a number of ways. They're one in the fact that they all have the same divine nature, right? They share the same desires. They have the same purpose for the world. They, they all work together in, in, in creation and redemption, right? The Father and creation, they all, they all work together for a common purpose. The Father ordains creation. He plans it. The, in John 1, Jesus executes creation. The Holy Spirit provides uh, life and sustenance for the, Holy, for the creation. In redemption, uh, God the Father plans redemption. Jesus executes redemption by becoming a sacrifice for sins for us. And the Holy Spirit applies the benefits to our hearts. 
But I want to look at this passage specifically and point out two ways in this passage that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. These two ideas express what it means for the Father to be in the Son and the Son to be in the Father. The first explanation of God's oneness is that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. Some of us call this the the mutual glorification of the persons of the Trinity. They share the glory amongst them. We see this uh, a glimpse of this in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. The Father glorified Jesus on earth. That's what it just says. In verse 24, we see again that the Father gives glory to the Son in eternity past. Father, I want them, notice in verse 24, to see my glory. What glory? The glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Notice, if you have your Bibles, look at verses 4 and 5. We see the Father sharing his glory with the Son and the Son glorifying the Father all in one verse. Jesus says, verses 4 and 5, I have brought you, Father, glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the the earth was even here, before the creation of the world. Elsewhere in John, we learn that the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son, and, and the Son and the Father honor and promote the role of the Holy Spirit. So, in summary, the persons of the Trinity are one, at least partially, because they glorify and honor each other. But again, what exactly does that mean? Okay, we, we kind of use this language like they glorify one another. What does that mean? To glorify someone is to adorn them. It's to make them look beautiful. It's to show them to be worthy. It's to honor them. I glorify my wife. This is how I glorify my wife. I glorify her by the way I promote her, by the way I talk about her, by the way I make her look beautiful to others in front of other people, by the way I I defer to her and I promote her causes. I give deference to her. That's how I make her look glorious and beautiful. John Frame, a famous theologian, says, We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorifying each other as they, quote, they support one another assist one another, promote one another's purposes. The deference within the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, this kind of disposability of each other, of each to the other, is mutual glorification. What does this teach about God's mission, about God? God's mission, it's inherent to him, it's part of his nature to glorify himself. But notice what self-glorification looks like for God, you know? It means honoring, it means adorning, and giving deference to the other persons of the Trinity. It's God's giving glory to himself is simultaneously God glorifying and self-giving, precisely because there's more than just, it's, there's three persons in the Trinity. The second explanation of God's oneness in John 17 is the eternal perfect love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. The mutual love within the persons of the Trinity. Notice how the love between the Father and Son is highlighted in these verses. I see it mentioned three times. The love between the Father and the Son. Last phrase of verse 23. You have loved them even as you, Father, loved me. Last phrase of verse 24. Jesus says that the Father gave him glory. Why? Why did he give him glory? 
because you loved me before the creation of the world. Again in verse 26, Jesus said, I have made you known to them, and I'll continue to make you known to them. Why? In order that the love you have for me may be in them. Why does the Father glorify the Son? And why does the Son glorify the Father? Why do they honor one another? Because they have loved one another. They have delighted in one another perfectly from before the creation of the world. If you've ever wondered, what was God doing before he created the world? Sitting up there, twiddling his thumbs, wondering, ah, I wish I had someone to talk to. He was delighting in himself. He was delighting in the Son and the Spirit. The Son was delighting in the Father. He was loving one another. The statement, God is love, you've heard that, right? We've all heard that. Can't be said of a God who isn't three. It can't be said of a God who's unitary. For, for love to be an essential component of God, it must have existed in himself in eternity past. Because love is essentially relational, right? You have to have another to be loving. So this communal love within the Trinity forms the basis for love within our communities. The communal love within God is the basis, is the reason why and the source for love here in our communities. And that brings us to our second point. I, I haven't paid attention to this. So, yeah, second point. There you go. What does it have to do with us? That's great. You're, this is kind of head in the sky, talk about the Trinity, theology, but what does it have to do with us? We can't be one exactly like God is one, can we? Why not? Because we're not God. You're not God and I'm not God. But the Bible tells us something significant. It tells us we bear God's image. In fact, Paul says that Christians, you're being renewed into the image of Christ. So we can image and we can reflect the unity of God. How can we do such a thing? The second point is the source of Christianity. We are brought into the love. Quick answer, we are brought, how can we do this? We are brought into the love and glory and oneness of the Trinity. God brings you into the life of the Trinity. Our unity has its source in God's unity. We learn that the Father, Son, and Spirit dwell within each other. We just learned that. We call this the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. Jesus prays that believers would be brought into that relationship now in verse 21. Let's read it. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And notice this. May they also be in us. Jesus asked the Father, as we dwell in one another, now let Christians dwell in us. In some mysterious way, it's mysterious, Christians are brought into this divine fellowship, into this divine communion. Let's look, let me explain what this means a little bit more by looking at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me in order that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus explains how we are brought into the life of the Trinity with these words. I, Jesus, am in them. And you, Father, are in me. So the, the model given here is that the Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in us. So that means we dwell with the Father, because we have the Son. And how does this all work, right, in the Bible? The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned. Where's the Holy Spirit in this? We have Jesus in us. How? Because the, it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us as Christians. 
through the Spirit, we have been brought into this divine glory and this divine love that is so mysterious, and it's it's going to fuel, it's going to be the source for love, unity, honor, prom- promoting one another, deference, here, in this body, right here. So how are we able to reflect God's unity, glory, and love? As the Father, Son, and Spirit dwell in one another, now the divine community has taken up residence in us, and remarkably, we have taken, in some mysterious way, residence with them. The life of God surges through your spiritual veins if you believe in Christ this morning. I said in the previous point that God's unity is understood in John 17 as both what does it mean that God's one? It means that they glorify one another. And it means that they love one another. They share the same love. God's glory and beauty has been shared within the Trinity from eternity past. What's remarkable, though, is that Jesus shared that glory with sinners. In verse 22, Jesus says, I have given them, Christians, the glory that you gave me. So there's this mutual glory going on within the Trinity, and Jesus says, I've given it to them. In verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me, where I am, speaking of his ascension into heaven. I want them to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. In the context, Jesus is about to display his glory by going to a cross, by enduring crucifixion, by being separated from his loving Father. He's about to be weak and wounded, but that's not the finale of the glory. He's going to be glorified. That's not the finale. When he's raised, he's he's ascended into heaven, and he's sitting at the right hand of God on the throne of the universe. And that's where his glory is. And he goes, I want them to be with me, Father. He's praying for you. He's praying for you right here. He's saying, I want them to be with me where I am. Why? So that they can see my glory. So that they can share in the glory that we've had from eternity past before the foundation of the world, honoring, promoting, loving, deferring to one another. So, Father, protect them. It's an amazing prayer. He wants us to share in his glory. Jesus prays to the Father to guard his people. And just remember that the Father does not turn away the prayers of his Son. There's no more guarantee, there's no guarantee more secure in all the world than the spiritual protection provided by the Father. You see here, if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then you know, you're know you more protected than the most protected thing you can think of, the crown jewels. You think that's protected? The Father has protection over you like, like the most secure thing, even more than the most secure thing you can ever imagine. If the triune God or divine community is, is marked by this glory, shared glory with one another... And if Jesus has has shared God's glory with us so that we can experience God's glory, then the way that we reflect the unity and glorification of the Trinity is actually by glorifying others in the church. It's remarkable. Not by glorifying ourselves, but the other. We actually glorify God by glorifying, honoring, showing deference to the members of our church. You should make your brother and sister in Christ look worthy. Jealousy and envy steal glory from others, right? Using your influence to crush another 
or make them insignificant, detracts from their glory. But, but not only that, when you don't honor your brother and sister here in the community of God, when you don't show deference to them, you're not only not glorifying them, you're, not, you're diminishing God's glory, aren't you? Because you're reflections of his image. That's why he's saying this to you. He's brought you into this shared glory so that you will give honor, deference to one another. Be disposable for others' goods. That's how you glorify them. Babysit for young ones. Sacrifice your time for the elderly. Be disposable. Be de- Defer to them. Honor them. Show that they're worthy. Tell the young man, woman in the church who's struggling to find employment that they've done some particular task really good. Show that they're worthy. Honor them. Even the people you don't think deserve honor. I mean, just think about this. The glory and honor that was shared in the Trinity, God brought us into. And so he says, now, share it amongst yourselves. Because you've been brought into this as well. Tell the single mother that can barely just get her children to church that her presence here brings you joy. You know, that's how you bring honor to people. That's how you, that's how you glorify God. The second way God makes us one, so God is one, and he says, now you be one, how does he do that? Is by causing us to share in his divine love. Jesus says something utterly amazing in the second half of verse 23. It says this, then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says that the Father loves Christians. He loves you, even as the Father loves Jesus. The same divine love that's been pouring between the Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past has now been poured out on you. And that sounds almost scandalous, right? You're telling me that the Father loves me. Or let's put it this way. You're telling me that the Father loves Jesus with the same love that he loves me. It's amazing. A rebellious sinner, weak, tainted by guilt, constantly waving in the faith. God loves me like he loves Jesus? Yeah, that's what he says right here. Why? Because he's brought you into the lo- his own life. He's brought you into this divine love. To be a Christian, to be a part of God's people, is to experience you know, what, what does it mean? If someone asks you, there's so many things you can say. What does it mean to be a Christian? One of the things it means to be a Christian is to experience the unfiltered love of God. The love of God is one of the most beautifully, uh, there's, a, there's a hymn called The Love of God, and it's one of the most, uh, we're still on that. We've got a, a while on that one. So, um, The Love of God is one of the most beautifully written hymns in the 20th century. I want to read you the third verse of this hymn called The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, a paper made, right? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched out from sky to sky. What's remarkable about that hymn, what's remarkable about that verse is where the author of the hymn found this final verse. 
It was etched under the wall right next to a man's bed in an insane asylum in the 20th century, early 20th century. Whoever penned those wonderful words about God's love suffered deeply from psychological and social disorder. It's one of the most famous 20th century hymns for the Christian church. People have been singing it for over 100 years. That man who wrote that probably suffered so severely that even his every earthly relationship was broken, I'm sure. So much so that he had to be put in an insane asylum. But even in the brokenness, even amongst his psychological disorder, God had brought him into divine love. You see, God's love, this unfiltered love, cures the soul like no other love could. I'm sure he, the man had insanity for most of his life, but the love of God brought immense clarity, enough for him to write this incredible poetry that has been sung for hundreds of years. Only the love of God can do that. We also reflect God's oneness by our, our love for one another, right? So we reflect it by glorifying one another. We also reflect this love by loving one another. Look at it again at verse 26. I will make you known, Father, to them, the world, and I will continue to make you known. Why? In order that the love that you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. This is the only prayer in all of Scripture that he that Jesus specifically prays for the church, for you. Okay? Only prayer. On the day before he goes to the cross. And on this one prayer, he could have prayed for so many, he could have asked the Father for so many things. I, I, I don't know if I would have prayed for this, right? But he asked the Father to make the church. He's got one prayer for you, and he asked the Father that you would reflect divine love, God's love. This is the mark, singular mark, of a healthy church. Love. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian... Your life should be a signpost of love. You should, get up yourself, you should get up every day and ask yourself, do I love God's people? Do I really love them? And when you ask that, people's faces should come to mind, okay? Actual faces with actual names. Your commitment to a local church is the assumption behind this command. I'll give you an illustration. You know, in the United States, we're, we're in election season. Everybody knows that right now, Unfortunately. As most of you have probably seen some of the unfortunate highlights of our, uh, whatever you call the political circus going on in America, uh, some of these politicians get up in debates and, and despite their contrary record will say things like this. I love the Hispanics. I love the Hispanic community. I love women. I love, women should, are for me, they should be for me because I love them. And I love this group and I love that group because of course they want their support. Do you know why these statements sound so superficial and shallow? Because there are no faces these candidates are actually accountable to. They're abstract groups that they can kind of just say anything to. I love this group. I love that group. I love this group. I love that group. Christians who aren't committed to a local church, I would suggest, are doing the same thing when they say, I'm all about love. I love the church. I love Christians. It's superficial because there's no local community of God's people they're actually accountable to. 
when you are committed to a church, then immediately when you ask, do I love God's people? You have a hundred faces or 50 faces and 50 names that come to mind and you can say, do I love that person? Do I love Jack? Do I love Jill? Do I love Jane? Do I love Ian? They're not abstract people. You love real people. The only way to love real people, to really reflect God's love, is to be committed to actual people. Not theoretically. I love the church. Well, if you're not part of one, how? But I would be failing you if I simply applied this command to reflect God's love by encouraging you to be a part of a church. After all, being a part of a church is simply the context for the command. Being a part of church doesn't mean you actually are loving. It just means you now can love like God loves. The Christian kind of love that should result in our lives is the kind of love, right, that we find in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That's, it's the, it's, it's not an easy love. It's not a painless love. It's not, a, it's not a convenient kind of love that we find in the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the kind of love I want to give usually. Pain-free, easy, convenient love. But what's the clearest display of God's love in the Bible? 1 John 4.10. Same author, John, tells us, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent sent his son to be a propitiation, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love, the same love that we have been drawn into by the Spirit, is most clearly seen in the Son, Jesus, going to the cross, his crucifixion, in his bearing the wrath of God for our sake. We need to let this sink in if, so that we can see what God, the kind of love God is calling us to. There's an, an analogy I like to borrow from another pastor, Tim Keller in, in New York, um, to help us see the costliness of God's love. I'm not sure if you've ever felt someone's dislike for you, felt rejection from someone. I'm particularly sensitive to rejection and what other people think about me. It can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. If one of you were to come up to me afterwards and say, Luke, I think you're a fraud. I despise you. I think you're a real big joke. You know what? That would hurt if you told me, if you rejected me like that. It would hurt. It would be painful. But at the end of the day, I've just met you. You know, I'd talk, I'd go home with my wife and I'd talk to her and I'd probably get over it, quite frankly. But if someone in my church, someone who's known me for a few years, came to me and said, Luke, I think you're a total fraud. Or, 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 or Luke, uh, sorry, what's my place? If they said, Luke, I really despise you. I just think you're a, I think you're a despicable person. The pain would go deeper really hurt. I wouldn't immediately recover from that. If one of my closest friends, someone who's known me for years and years, someone I love and care about very dearly, came to me and said they were disgusted by me, said they I was horrifying, that would be horrifying to me. I don't know if I'd recover from that. I'd be so deeply hurt. Some of you have felt this before. The pain of rejection is so hard. But if my wife my most intimate companion, the love of my life, someone I've shared the deepest, most intimate love with, came to me and said, Luke, I despise you. 
can't even look at you. I don't know the kind of pain that would feel. Some of you have felt that. I don't know how I'd cope with something like that. The pain of the rejection would be so deep. I almost can't even imagine ever being able to recover from some kind of rejection. The Father and the Son were in perfect union. Love, intimacy, delight from eternity past. And when you ask, what did, what did the love of God for you cost him? It cost that love between the Father and the Son to be broken. The Father, to love you and to bring you into this love, had to turn his back. And the Son had to accept that so that you could be brought into relationship with him. You see the love of God? It's not, not, it's not convenient. It's not painless. It's incredibly painful. I can't imagine. No one, some people can imagine what it feels like to be rejected by a spouse. No one can imagine this, this pain. Rejected by your, your father that you've been in eternal love and communion and, and delight with. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Our love so often extends only in safe situations, doesn't it? Situations that we can't be taken advantage of. We don't like poor people because they ask for money. We don't like broken people. We don't love broken people because they're time-consuming. We don't love strange people because they force us out of our comfort zone. And I'm preaching to myself. I don't love poor people as I should because they cost me something. Broken people, time-consuming. Strange people make me feel weird. Good thing I'm strange too, though, right? Even as Christians, we are inclined towards easy, convenient love. But the love of God, the love that we have been drawn into is anything but convenient. So love your church. Even the difficult ones. Probably because you're a difficult one. So how will God's people, how will God's people reflect the unity found within God himself? By glorifying one another and by loving one another. But the passage doesn't end there. There's one more quick point, but it's very important because there's also a purpose to this unity, the final point. The purpose of Christian unity. What is the purpose of Christian unity? Your unity, the love that you show for the people in your church, is the means by which God is drawing the world to himself. Look at the second half of verse 21. May they, Christians, also be in us, Father and Son, why? Why should we be one? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the fa- the unity of the church. It's like the gravitational force of the gospel message. The credibility of the gospel message is tied to how you love and honor the people in your church and the people who come across to you in day-to-day life. People will never come to Christ apart from boldly and creatively sharing the gospel with words, right? The unbelieving word world must be told that there is a holy God who is the creator of the universe. They must hear that, that men have, have rebelled from that God, but that God sent his son to redeem those men. 
by, by becoming a sacrifice, by taking the, the, the sin on himself and, and redeeming them from their sin. And then by being raised from the dead. And all who believe in him through repentance of their sin and from faith will, 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 will be saved. They have to hear those words. You, you, people don't get saved apart from hearing that message, right? But evangelism, sharing the gospel, cannot be reduced, at least biblically speaking, to repeating this message. You have to do it, but it's not just that. The gospel must be spoken, it must be understood, understood, but the compelling force, the gravitational force of the gospel message is found within the transformed lives in this church. That's what makes it look beautiful to them. Yes, your unity, your love for one another is an integral component to evangelism. And unfortunately, this is largely missing in in most training, right, on evangelism. But throughout the entire New Testament, the unity and love for the church is always linked to people coming to Christ. Let's read verse 23. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you loved me. Once again, Jesus says, I'm I'm going to bring the church into complete unity. And then he gives two results in that verse. First, the world will believe in Jesus. They'll know that you sent me. But look what comes next. The world will know that the Father has loved them, Christians, as you loved me. The result of your unity is that the, the world will realize that Christians have been brought into the circle of divine love. They'll know that you are the beloved of God. D.A. Carson says, what greater evangelistic appeal do you have than this? That all the security and contentment of God's love you have in the world. As we wrap up, I I want to consider the question why. Why is our unity such a big deal? That Jesus would pray for this one thing before he goes to the cross. Why is that such a big deal? So many other things to pray for. One of the famous catechisms says, the chief end of man is to glorify God. What's the chief end? Of, what's the purpose for your life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, we glorify God by reflecting God as image bearers. Our unity is a big deal because you can't reflect God in isolation. You can't do what you're fundamentally called to do by yourself. If you were to read your Bible every day in isolation, pray every day in isolation, never had a stray thought, never said a bad word, never lied, never hurt your neighbor, if you did all these things every day, but you lived in isolation, not pouring your love out on your community, not giving glories to others, not serving them, not deferring to others, not giving deference to other people in your community, you would be a poor reflector of God's glory, beauty, and unity. Isn't that amazing? There is a communal dimension, a communal dimension to reflecting God's image. And it's summed up in the word unity. It's fueled by love, and it's made possible by God and by his spirit, bringing you in to the life of God himself. You have the life of God surging through your spiritual veins 
Father, he would say, as you are in me and I am in you, may Rotherham Evangelical Church be in us. Let's pray.